and we're the Barclays. This is our podcast about politics, religion, the culture, and our wonderful opinions on all of the above. Here we are broadcasting from our dining room table. And with a, uh, we have a new name, right? Oh, we do. We rebranded. <laughs> it's been that buzzing you've heard in the streets and in the media. <laughs> we are now called We're the Barclays, if you noticed. We have a Not fam- We're the Barclays. <laughs> yeah, we were, were the Barclays. We're the Barclays. We're. And we have a Facebook fan page. Thank you if you've liked it. Yeah, that's um, been cool to see. Because we decided to go big because we hit a thousand listens last week. So thank you, everyone. Incredible. Thank you. Kind of blows our mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not just speaking into the void. You know, we're <laughs> wondering. No, I'm just kidding. We've gotten wonderful feedback from everyone. Thank you. Yeah, it really has been amazing. Thank you. So this week, we are uh, taking our prerogative of this being our podcast <laughs> to talk about an op-ed that I'm publishing Friday morning, which is when this podcast goes out. Yeah. Um, so simultaneously giving a sneak peek of this op-ed. Or a timely morning update, right? <laughs> sure, right, sure. Because <laughs> most people probably listen to this on Friday and after, right? Yeah, I said Friday. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Anyway, people people aren't here for logistics. (laughs) People are here to talk about important matters. Our next rebrand will be "We're the Logistics." (laughs) Okay, we'll spare you our family calendaring and get to the point. Because you, it's an excellent piece for with real clear policy. Yes. And I'm calling this your manifesto, the Rachel Barclay manifesto. What is it about? Well, it is called Human Dignity and the New Values Voter. And I wrote it because this has been kind of a thought that has been simmering within me for a while and just kind of bubbled up to the surface. And I felt like I had to get it out there. Hmm. Um, So basically, you know, I've now both of us have been working in policy politics for a decade uh, as of June of this year and um, grew up, you know, thinking about politics, talking about politics as teenagers, even both of us. And um, for the longest time, I've heard this term values voter or vote your values or vote for even American values. Um, So it's kind of this Mm. like voting Mm -hmm. set. I have to, yeah. Typically in kind of Republican center-right circles, that means you're talking about issues of being pro-life or anti-abortion, and you're talking about religious freedom and family formation issues and marriage issues. Right. It's typically what that has kind of meant. Um, But it is also, in recent years, I think with people, especially in our age group, gotten a bad rap because it has come down to kind of... Um, culture war politics yep. in uh, you know if you're going to vote your values it really means voting for a culture warrior who's going to like go to the mat for you to kind of fight your values battles for you right read Dr. Seuss on air or 
Yeah, kind of, you know. Stand on a street corner. Own the libs on whatever. Yeah, right, right, right. And uh, that that has really bothered me, has bothered Taylor and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really have come to the point of, you know, I really think there should be a redefinition of what we mean by values. And values should be something that are universal and that are immutable, that are never changing. So that means they have to be rooted in certain things. So in my op-ed, I say that values should not be defined as the culture war of the day. Yeah. They should be defined as being rooted in natural law and the imago day. Wow. What do those things mean? <laughs> Taylor, I think you should tell us. <laughs> so I don't talk the whole time. What? Well, you can read some excellent definitions in the piece, but I have a, I have a better understanding, I think, of Imago Day than I do of natural law. So we'll start there. It comes from Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven, where God is creating the world, all the creatures in it, and then humanity, man and woman, and He says, "Let let us create." man and woman in our likeness, in our image, in our image, in our likeness. And I I like this note in this study Bible uh, that says in the Old Testament and the New Testament, image and likeness as Mm -hmm. words Mm -hmm. are interchangeable. I mean, they mean the same thing. So by image, we being created in God's image. We have the characteristics that God has, I think, of creativity, of value, of beauty, of intrinsic worth. There's there's a bit of a transference, a transfusion, maybe, if you will, uh, a gifting of hmm. God's character into every human being. So this is kind of the, the basic, the basic like software, the basic hmm. building blocks. These are the, the foundational aspects of what it means to be a human being. Everyone is created in God's image, has his likeness. And this has radical implications then. Right. Every single human being this applies to. It has, I mean, it has biblical applications in the biblical context, but then even beyond that, I mean, if this is the truth, then everything, yeah, so many things click into place. So many things click into place because of that belief. And I think maybe we even take it for granted that this is in the you know Christian and the Jewish context, right? The first book of the Torah. Um, you know, you look at some societies haven't been built on this. You know, you think about the caste system in India. Not everyone is born equal in mm-hmm. value and worth. So right. this right. is this is a really foundational understanding that then radiates on to how we think about politics, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, you know, there's natural law, um, which are these God-given rights that, um, you know, there's, you can talk forever about that, but paired together, Imago Dei and natural law um, is basically saying that every human being is born with intrinsic value, the Imago Dei, and inherent rights, natural law. So, um, the, these two things together mm-hmm. kind of form what I lay forward should be our values. And I apply that, um, to policy areas in the piece. And, you know, specifically I talk about, um, 
my own story and that and how these aren't just kind of up in the air ideals. Right. They, they came to life for me in two different ways in uh, 2019. So one, when I was pregnant with Hudson, mm-hmm. with our son, um, seeing the ultrasound every day and him becoming this being inside of me, mm-hmm. that was this like, oh, the Imago day made real. My son is, is a pretty radical yeah. experience. Um, and then, you know, I, I talk about how at uh, 10 weeks along every OBGYN asks you if you would like to get genetic testing with the implication being, you know, if something comes back abnormal, let's say there's the 23rd chromosome, which means your child has Down syndrome, you can learn that at 10 weeks old. Mm. And the implication, they give you this test early because they want to give you the choice to have an abortion. Mm. And, you know, for me, um, I said, no matter what this test says, I would not abort my child Mm. because regardless of Down syndrome or some other genetic abnormality, the Imago Dei still applies. And that's the root of pro-life thinking that that came to life for us when we were pregnant. And then um, the other piece was, of course, when I became disabled and um, have since become a part of the disability community and learned some of the kind of horrible things that uh, have happened to the disability community because Mm -hmm. at times people with disabilities were seen as subhuman to be kind of hidden away and whatnot. Um, Yeah, I mean, up until fairly recent history, I mean, your experience, my experience with you has really brought to light the forgotten aspect of what is the U.S. population? What's the percentage who are classified as disabled? I think um, it's almost... Is it 13%? It's very high, yeah. 13%, yeah. Um, so a few million people who, you know, not much media attention. Um, the American Disabilities Act passed in 1991. So recently. There's, I mean, a, there's an excellent documentary on Netflix called Crip Camp mm-hmm. about uh, the history of disabilities in America, just recent history and that passage. But so you, so you, in your piece, though, you talk about this, these, this foundational motivation your experiences and then you go into this history mm-hmm. and it, tie those two things together like what and then it flows into particular policies like yeah yeah so um tell us more <laughs> well i guess we'll talk about what the opposite of these values are <laughs> that took root and I, I think it's really important to talk about um the history in our American context that did not hold these values dear and how important it is to grasp these values and have a good understanding in order to stand strong against what we see as evil. So in the early 20th century, so um, like 1900 to Mm -hmm. 1930s, a really prevalent ideology or pseudoscience that took hold mm-hmm. was eugenics. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, uh, we look at eugenics and we say, that's what Adolf Hitler ascribed to. That is mm-hmm. terrible. But shockingly, I mean, we had a sitting U.S. president who ascribed to it. Woodrow Wilson was a proponent of it. H.G. Wells, a top... Um, science fiction writer. Science fiction yeah. cultural leader. H.G. Wells was yeah. a eugenics believer. And this was the idea that certain undesirable qualities could be bred out of a population, which is 
evil and crazy that this was so popular then. Um, but it was, people thought it was the truth. And this resulted in, in the United States, I mean, so many terrible, terrible things. But one of the things was forced sterilization laws. Hmm. In this country, probably 70,000 people estimated either disabilities, low income, black, uh, people were forcibly sterilized by the state and then the supreme court ruled that that was legal crazy yeah and is that the quote from oliver wendell holmes jr yes where what is it imbeciles can only be three generations or should only be three generations deep yeah he he says three gen even worse three generations of imbeciles are enough wow Wow. words of a supreme court justice it was really really popular amongst elite intelligentsia at the time until frankly discovery of nazi concentration camps right and how they were connected to eugenic eugenicist thought and really crazy this kind of ties into my next point about immigration policy um Nazi, uh, I don't know what you call them, emissaries <laughs> came over to this country and mm. they actually picked up some of these forced sterilization laws from the United States. That, I mean, terrible, yeah. terrible. Um, and the kind of father of that strain of thought was this guy, Harry Hamilton Laughlin, not very well known, probably because he's evil. And he, um, not only was he the proponent of these sterilization laws, but he was also appointed by the chairman of the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization as, this is this is a real title, as the committee's expert eugenics agent. Crazy. It's wild. So this was in the 20s. Wow. And the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924 had this guy's fingerprints all over it. The bill did a massive restriction of immigration, 20% of previous levels, specifically targeting a reduction of the kind of unseemly immigrants of the day, which were the Jews and the Italians at the time. Mm. Um, it's crazy. So that was that was the bedrock of that immigration bill, was this wow. expert eugenics agent. So um, this is the wrong values, right? The, this is the opposite of the Imago Dei, right? right? Yeah, okay. When it, um, like, so this is like when you form policy or have a worldview that without an Imago Dei or natural law, yes. you can end up in these evil places. Yes. Is what you're saying. Yes. And um, so that's the negative. <laughs> What's what the we positive don't want to do. The positive vision is that. Um, the implications of a values policy that focus on the Imago Dei and natural law are policies that see all humans not only as equal in value, but in bringing value to society. Yes. Like you in a wheelchair, yes. you with Down syndrome, you an immigrant from Mexico, yes. you are not, not only are you equal, you bring yes. value to society. Yes. No matter what. Um, and I love, I love this um, speech by President Ronald Reagan in 1988. Um, he's giving, I think, a Medal of Honor to jo- George Schultz. And he has this great, great bit about immigrants. After This was two years after he passed a sweeping amnesty bill. And it ends saying, if we ever close the door to new Americans, our leadership in the world would soon be lost. Hmm. Ronald Reagan, that's so many of his speeches. You see that he understands the value of human life. Hmm. 
I think you cast a good positive vision in this piece, and this was a good summary. You didn't give everything away either. That's right. There's more juicy tidbits. (laughs) (laughs) Including more specific ways forward and hopeful ways forward as a new values voter. That's right. Yeah. Good work. So bottom line, the values, you know, I say should apply not only to pro-life and family and religious freedom policy that, you know, have been the kind of mark of that for decades, but it should also apply to immigration, to criminal justice, to disabilities, and to welfare reform. Love it. Thanks for writing it. Yes, I have lots to say on it. I'm Ah. very worked up and passionate. (laughs) (laughs) But we should shift to our media stinkers and thinkers yes taylor what is your stinker my stinker is i've been i've been cooking up the stinker for a little bit actually uh the book the immortality key oh yeah you've been mad about this (laughs) (laughs) it's been it's been a slow stink um by brian murarescu Rescue, Brian Moore Rescue, The Immortality Key. Yeah, so I'm halfway through, so I thought, okay, I'll just give like the first stink. <laughs> Where he basically makes, he tries to make the case that psychedelics were used by the ancient Greeks in uh, certain religious practices and then bled into Christianity as the foundation and incorporated into the Eucharist. What? <laughs> so part one is saying the ancient Greeks liked magic mushrooms and other uh, psychedelics but i mean there's all sorts of things well the one thing that was just wrong was he's talking to this archaeologist in athens and they're both like commiserating how the christians burned the library of alexandria i should also note i've spent probably like decent a few hours of my life just like sad about the burning of the library of alexandria <laughs> and i looked up i was like i've never heard this christian's burning it so i looked up wikipedia britannica encyclopedia britannica and both places corrected on my own conception there was not one burning of library of alexandria there were multiple huh. the christians did do some bad things to it in the three late 300s a.d but the first burning was 48 bc with julius caesar wow wow so i mean christianity wasn't even a thing then <laughs> And it, by like three three ninety two, I think when the Christians did their shenanigans, it was like a defunct organization. Really wasn't what it was at all, you know. In like the early uh, before, you know, the turn of the millennium. So, but anyway, it's just like this guy. I mean, like that's uh, not his only false. No, thing. no, and it just we could do a whole podcast on it. But it's it's a bad book. Um, Your face is turning red just talking about it. <laughs> It has fifteen hundred four and a half star reviews on Amazon, <laughs> and it's they're I'm, all on psychedelics. We're cruising on two stars right now for me, and I, I'll finish it, and we'll see how it goes. With mushrooms? <laughs> <laughs> no, no mushrooms. No mushrooms have been involved. Um, even the author says he didn't take psychedelics. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> What's your sticker? Okay, honestly, I thought you were going to have the same stinker and we would dialogue about it. So my stinker, Taylor and I, every once in a while, (laughs) (laughs) every once in a while we find a TV show that we both really enjoy. And I have really enjoyed, 
no surprise, Taylor loves space shows. I don't really like space. I do like space. Movies or shows. I don't want to go to space. I don't want to think about space. I just don't really like space. <laughs> so, but we found one and I surprisingly like it. It's called For All Mankind. It's about, oh, I do I love the going. Cold War though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's about. Not in that way, but in the, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's about what would have happened if the Russians won the space race first on the moon instead yes. of the Americans. Yes. What would have happened? Um, so really great well storyline. Really well done. We've enjoyed all the seasons. Is this season three we're on? Two. Two. Okay. We're end of season two. Loving the show. And then suddenly they come with this terrible subplot. This is a spoiler if you're watching it. Spoiler. Where the mom who has like, the kids are like 20, 18, 20 years old. Her deceased son's best friend and her have like they make a romantic moment. And it's so weird. It, and you yeah. didn't have to do that. Nope. And it ruined the entire show. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it was like, what, what did it What did it feel like? It's like someone just like punched you in the gut or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want to even play anymore. Like, yeah, I'm, so. I'm out. Or like, uh, yeah. I mean, this is your stinker. But. <laughs> <laughs> more uh, analogies <laughs> it, 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 the wind went out of the sails i'll yeah. say like we, sure we can believe preposterous <laughs> things like soviets landing on the moon and like guns on the moon and it was really clever yeah but then the mom making out with her deceased son's best friend 25 years 20 years later uh, come on yeah come on it was bad it was bad boo That's if the writers are listening you made a terrible mistake <laughs> that's right Okay. Thinkers. Uh, thinkers. Taylor, what's your thinker? My thinker. Actually, I'm going to say Crip Camp. Oh. That was an excellent... We watched it, gosh, yeah. was it a year ago, oh, maybe? Oh, so good. It's a Netflix documentary. I think I cried. I think I cried, too. Uh, it's actually nominee in Academy Award documentary Didn't section. did the Obamas produce it? They were involved yeah. somehow. Uh, what aren't they involved in? A great history, though, of what yes. it took to get... The Americans with Disabilities Act passed. Yeah, but it's like more. It's like about the this camp, summer camp for kids, disabled kids in the '70s. And there's documentary footage, and but yeah, then it tracks their lives and how they form this community that really catalyzed the ADA passage mm-hmm. in the '90s. And like there's footage of that, the marches that they did, and it's joyful. It's so really good. well done. Even though I don't care about award shows, you know, <laughs> Academy Award doesn't matter, but it's still a nominee, and it's 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 excellent. Yeah. Crip camp. Highly endorse. Yep. Um, my thinker um, is I started reading. I'm actually not finished with it, so maybe I should wait. But I know I'm going to like it even when it's done. I'm reading a biography. Of, as long as like the mother doesn't make out with. Uh, yeah, yeah. As long as there's no plot yeah. to us. And I know there won't be because it's a biography. It's not fiction. Uh, biography of Catherine the Great by Robert Massey. Uh, I read her other his other uh, book on. Uh, the Romanovs, and he's a really good historian of this kind of Russian history. And I've decided that monarch biographies are my chiclet. Because you've moved on from spy. Yeah, I used to like, you know, World War Two spy women. Now I really I like biographies of monarch. It's so fascinating the lives that they led. And what's like, an interesting fact? Oh, gosh. Quick, interesting fact. Quick, interesting fact. Um, Oh, well, this is really sad that, you know, Catherine the Great um, was brought to Russia to marry 
Peter Ulrich, the future emperor of Russia, uh, mid-1700s. She's brought there just to bear a child, as is often the case. Uh, he just needs a wife. He's he's pretty terrible and stunted in his emotional development. How can you not be? Uh, yeah, he, he had a pretty rough life, too. But um, so she's brought there to have a child, finally gets pregnant, and... Uh, right after she gets birth, they whisk the baby away and then she doesn't see her baby son for months because the empress Mm. of Russia, Elizabeth, is just kind of courting him around and kind of takes him as her son because she never had a child. So it's really sad and Catherine's just all alone, no one to love. Man, this is like peak Russia, right? Uh, Well, Catherine brings it into peak Ah, Russia, but I'm not there yet. Ah, That's good. Well, thanks for sharing your piece, Rachel, your preview. We'll put it in the email notes and share it around social media. Everyone give it a read. And everyone go get vaccinated. (laughs) Thanks for listening.